Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Total Soccer Show, a Saturday edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. On today's episode, it's just myself and one other co-host breaking down a wild day at the Women's World Cup. France, Sacre Bleu. After a 10-round shootout, they've bid this tournament adieu. Uh, There was drama and chaos and some moments sublime. And then another argument for eliminating extra time. But the shootout, the shootout. Such swings and misses. Vine's eventual winner had Australians giving their badges some kisses. Over in Sydney, temporarily Bogota. We had the first half finish with a one-to-one draw. But England persevered and made Colombia pay. Catalina Perez, their goalkeeper, picked a bad time to have a bad day. The Lionesses and Matildas advanced to the final that is semi. That's a strange way of putting it, isn't it, Joe Lowry? <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, I like that a lot. <laughs> not, not as many Britishisms as mm-hmm. Ryan usually drops. And I think on the whole, that's probably a positive. So I'm here for that. Um, Ryan is off doing Wimbledon things. Graham is off, I assume, mourning the fact that England are still in this competition. So yep. It's just you and me. They let the, the kids kind of run the playhouse. Are we the kids running the play? I don't, I'm not sure where we are right now. But we're here, darn it. And we're here to talk soccer. We are indeed. Yeah, uh, Ryan watching Wimbledon. Graham, I'm assuming, as you said, just really being annoyed that England have made it through. It didn't seem like they were going to for about four and a half minutes. And then uh, they found their way right back into that game. We're going to talk about that game second, their 2-1 to win over Colombia. Because first... France and Australia made us wait until the shootout, Joe, and then things got interesting on a goal-scoring side. I feel like this game was pretty interesting from the start because I think Australia did some things that made France uncomfortable, but then France seemed to kind of make themselves uncomfortable. It's a strange one where I feel like if I ask you this question broadly, the answer tends to be a little bit of both. Was it France being bad or Australia being good? I think with this one... I don't want to take anything away from Australia's win. I thought they were, they were as sharp as they needed to be. I thought they executed their game plan well, and I thought they made some adjustments along the way to get this result. And then the shootout performance is pretty stellar. But I do think this was France picking a bad time, time to have their worst game of this tournament. So I'm inclined to say this was, at least in the first half, France just being very, very poor, especially by their standards. I would totally agree with that, Taylor. Coming into this game... We knew exactly what Australia was going to do, right? They've made that very, very clear. Sam Kerr or no Sam Kerr, and we ultimately got Sam Sam Kerr in the 55th minute. um, (laughs) But no Sam Kerr once again. Taylor, you were finally right about that. Congratulations (laughs) on on nailing that prediction. Uh, So either way, regardless of whether Kerr is in the lineup or not, we know what Australia want to do under Tony Gustafsson. They want to play in a 4-4-2 block. They'll press occasionally, but they generally want to make you break them down. That's their biggest uh, tactical idea at a macro level. They want to have you do the hard work. They'll win the ball in midfield. They'll transition quickly through Mary Fowler, through either Van Eggman or, or Kerr when she does come on the field. 
and then push the wingers forward, maybe push the fullbacks forward at times. But the recipe is is very, very clear. And, and frankly, it was clear long before this tournament in a way that France's recipe is still maybe not quite as established. They've gone yeah. through a coaching change recently. Uh, obviously, now Irvinard is, is leading this team. They've done a few different things. Ultimately, France decided to go back to the 4-4-2 shape that has worked for them at times throughout this competition. It's Diani and Les Samer as the front two. But the challenge for France was they never looked fully comfortable having the role of the protagonists on their back. They never looked fully comfortable moving the ball quickly enough to break lines, moving the ball quickly enough to run downhill into the final third and, and really disorganize Australia's block. To me, it looked like Australia's lives were easy. Now, there is, it, there's an art to this, right? There's an art to defending well, to shifting in a block, to, to blocking off passing lanes. And in general, I thought Fowler and Ben Egmond and, and Gori and, and uh, Cooney Cross in midfield did a good job of blocking off Gioro and, and Toletti for France. So it wasn't easy. And Australia do deserve credit. But I, I was really underwhelmed by France knowing, surely they knew, Taylor, coming into this game, what they were going to have to do. Like, they were going to be the ones that had even just that slight edge in possession, that had that slight edge in attacking responsibility, and they just didn't really look ready for it. They, they didn't, and uh, the commentators for Fox were saying that it felt like part of France's game plan was to try to slow the game down and take the air out of it, because obviously this is a, a home crowd for Australia and a very vocal home crowd at that. I understand the logic behind that, and I do think to some extent that was what they were trying to do, was sort of play their game, not make obvious mistakes that would get them punished, and, and slowly exert control and sort of kill off the energy of that crowd i don't think they did really any of that starting with controlling the game this felt really sloppy from both teams but especially from france it it felt like they weren't able to control they weren't able to win certain individual battles that i thought they would and it was a lot of loose touches a lot of passes out of bounds their goalkeeper uh especially uh was pretty poor in distribution and had some shaky moments and and for almost the entirety of this game, for almost the entire 120 minutes that we ended up getting, uh, it, it never felt like France were, were sort of dominating, were controlling the game, were playing the game that they wanted to play. I thought they had some good individual performances in this one, but largely it was a much sloppier, less controlled game from France than I was expecting. Yep, totally, totally agree with you, Taylor. And we'll talk more about the goalkeeping, really. Uh, from both losers in in this set of games, as yes, the show goes on, um, Perot Magnon might be my favorite chaos merchant on the planet right now because Ooh. I felt like that's what she was there to do in this game, which wasn't a huge asset for France. But Taylor, you mentioned the individual matchups there that, that France couldn't really exploit. And I love that you brought that up because, again, they go back to the tactical layout and then zoom out from there. Both teams in a 4-4-2 shape. Really, and, and not a lot of deviation from that. Like, not a lot of wingers dropping in to add an extra number in midfield. Not that it never happened, but you get the idea. Not a lot of fullbacks pinching into those spaces in meaningful moments. You know, it was a lot of 4-4-2 versus 4-4-2. And if you, th- if you think about how those shapes match up, it's the back four for one side against the front two and the two wide midfielders for the other side. And then you've got really, you know, kind of a 2v2 in midfield. And then you've got fullbacks against wingers, wingers against fullbacks and strikers against center backs all the way across the board. And so it's a lot of 1v1 matchups. Now, soccer is more fluid than that, to be clear. And, and a shape, the shape that you choose doesn't define how you play, doesn't define your style or any of those things. It's just numbers that we try to use to wrap our heads around what's happening on the field. But in this game, where both teams are fairly willing to be static, there were a lot of 1v1 matchups. And very mm-hmm. early on in this game, France having a little bit of the edge in terms of possession across the whole 120 minutes, but early on as well, 
It's Selma Bacha who's playing on the, the left side of midfield for France. She has a moment in the fifth minute, I believe, to go and try to beat Ellie Carpenter, who's playing as right back for Australia, and she doesn't, right? And that's fine. You're not going to win every 1v1 matchup. But to me, just five minutes into the game, it set the tone yeah. for what this game was going to look like. It was going to look like France having a lot of the ball. Again, it ended up being fairly narrow in terms of possession on the grand scheme of things. But it was France. It was their job to break through Australia. It was their job to find 1v1 matchups to exploit either with the wide players or even progressing the ball through midfield or with a striker. And Diani has a nice moment. I believe it's in the eighth minute after Alana Kennedy uh, playing, uh, yeah. I think, on the left side of the center back pairing for Australia makes a little mistake and, and Diani gets a shot. Like There were lots of 1v1s and some of them created like these little half chances for France, like that Diani shot. But more of them, for me, like that Bacha 1v1 against Ellie Carpenter just led to nothing for France. And that was a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, so the 1v1s, I think that's a great point. I would extend that to some of their passing decisions. Coming out of the Morocco game, one of the things that I was really impressed by and I thought made a difference for France and made France a potential difference maker at this tournament was their willingness to concede possession to try risky or semi-risky passes, to look for opportunities to hit a big switch or to go for a through ball that maybe is only going to get through one out of every three or four times. But if it does get through, it makes the defense panic. It makes them collapse. It pulls them out of position. It makes them have to do things they don't want to do. It takes them out of their defensive comfort level. And it allows France to then push numbers forward to have those individual moments and in this game there just wasn't a ton of that there were sort of those direct balls as you talked about early and and often I would say but for every one of those there were moments when a player cuts it back or recycles possession and slows the game down and there wasn't that level of control but then also that level of dynamism to the way France were playing in this one I I think a lot of that does have to do with the shape Uh, against Morocco Morocco certainly a weaker uh, opponent than Australia but I had it as uh, Gianni starting as like more of like in the number 10 role in a 4-2-3-1. She seemed to be the deeper one here. It was that front two for a while. It felt like it was Les Amer who was tasked with dropping in and trying to hold hold up play, uh, turn under pressure and carry the ball forward. I thought she was one of the only bright spots for France. Uh, I thought she had a, a good enough game on the ball. I think her touch is is just next level. So she's always going to look like a better player and a more composed player. But it didn't feel to me like France were able to sort of capitalize on any, any of that. Didn't feel like they were really looking to capitalize on that. It felt like they yeah. were trying to make sure that they didn't put a foot wrong and sometimes when you're so focused on balancing you end up falling over whereas if you're just doing your thing and not really thinking about it i think the balance uh can remain as it is yeah the balance was off yes some of the passing decisions were off the 1v1s were off in general i just thought i I thought france were too slow to do basically anything in this game and this is when i want to insert we'll talk more about australia i i would assume Mm -hmm. in a few minutes but i want to insert Australia deserve credit for this. Like they, they have this underlying current of impact all throughout all of these French issues that we're talking about. It's not as if these are happening in a vacuum and, and France are just trying to pass the way through like training dummies, right? Australia are doing things that are making France's life difficult, but France also doing things that make France's life difficult. In general, they were too slow. Teleti in midfield, I think I mentioned her name earlier, talking about some of the matchups in this, in this game. She's playing midfield, uh, you know, generally the deeper lying player in that spot for France with, with Gioro doing a little bit more of the box to box stuff in front of her. And she's, she's getting touches on the ball in this game, Giletti, but she's not really impacting a lot of moments. There's a, a moment I clocked in the 14th minute where France have the ball over on the right side and they're trying to play through Giletti as that pivot player over to the left side. Like there's space on the left. They know it. They're trying to go through Giletti to find it and she can't move the ball fast enough. 
to let them access that space. Like they, it doesn't come off because Toledi's not moving quick enough. Either she's not processing what's happening around her quick enough or she's not having a, a good night. There's another moment about 15 minutes later. This one comes in the 31st minute where Toletti's on the ball and she's trying to play forward and her pass is intercepted. Like it's these passes that you kind of need your number six to, to complete. You need them to be this more comfortable metronome. And that doesn't have to be the case all the time. But in these moments where you're trying to play from one part of the field quickly to the other to break a line or to find ac- to, to access space on the opposite side, you need to let you, you need your six to come through in those moments. And, and she didn't yeah. come through. Ultimately, she was she was rough in this game. And Irvinard decides to bring on Vicky Becho, 19-year-old yeah. Leon midfielder, for her in the 64th minute. Like, I think that's a sign of how rough Toletti was in this game. And because she is really the driver at the base of midfield, in some ways, if she has a poor game, France are going to struggle to really mount consistently dangerous yep. pieces of buildup. Well said. And I would extend that to if she, uh, Toletti, has a bad game, it's also going to impact her midfield partner, Grace Gayoro, who I think has been underrated. We haven't spent a ton of time talking about her in this competition, but she's been so good at arriving late and scoring goals. We know she can do that. She did that plenty in qualifying. Maybe not scoring goals here, but facilitating attacking play and being involved in attacking play. But if you have those moments break down like you talked about, I had both of those moments as being confusing to me because it felt like in other games we've seen seen France keep possession and start building into that rhythm, and we didn't. And I think the interesting thing is from that minute until I'm looking at my notes, I mean, we get into like the 60th, 65th is like when I start having France notes again from like the early 30th minute into the 60th minute, it's mostly Australia. It's Fowler carrying it forward. It's Australia with a swift attack uh, through Rosso. Uh, it's it's France having to panic and throw defenders in and try to shut opportunities down and go sort of with very physical defending. And you could see them just start to get really frustrated and, and the body language was just wrong. There's one where Diani has a, receives a throw in, passes it back to, Car- uh, I, think, I think it's Karchawi, uh, and or no, I think it's uh, uh, Lacroix, and she ba- passes it back and just passes it straight out of bounds and they both just stand there and stare yep. at each other. And the more revealing thing was that neither one says anything. They're both just like... Uh, Okay, and then they both kind of walk back or jog back, and it was there's not even that sort of fire. I would I, I contrast it with with England for a moment. There's there's a second when things were getting physical. Colombia have a goal kick, and they did a, sort of a, a a shot of Myra Ramirez backing up, waiting to receive the goal kick, and you see Alex Greenwood screaming at her team like, and and I was like, oh, is she yelling about a particular thing? Like, no, she was just saying like, let's go. She's amping people up. They're they're trying to battle. They're trying to keep that energy up and not be sort of overcome by the moment i feel like france were entirely overcome by what australia were doing and so maybe now is where we should talk about australia for a second it's an australia team that as we've already talked about haven't started sam kerr this whole competition and i think if we told most aussie fans heading into this one oh yeah sam kerr is not going to start a single game at this tournament she's going to make two substitute appearances the thinking would be okay so we're knocked out in the group stages well that's a shame like no sam kerr i see how that happens it's wild to me that they are now in the semifinals of a world cup with sam kerr having had very little impact in this tournament she scores her penalty and that was a a very good moment i really did not want it to be a strange narrative of her not playing and missing her penalty but it's australia winning like uh despite not having sam kerr around and it's emily van eggman once again partnering with mary fowler and i think that uh, that duo has worked well, and they seem to have built a really good rapport and relationship. Mary Fowler, I thought, again, looking 
pretty solid. She has that one really good shooting opportunity that if she puts to either side of the goal is probably a goal. Maybe a few points off overall her performance for that one. She takes her penalty well, though. But I thought Caitlin Ford uh, used her like dribbling ability, her technical ability, but also her physicality to ride challenges and help uh, alleviate some pressure when there was French pressure, but also help transition into attack. I thought Haley Rosso uh, did the same, but then also brought an intensity to her challenges that kept seeming to annoy France. And I think this game was just about Australia playing their game and staying focused and France getting increasingly agitated and annoyed. Uh, so I, I think Australia deserve a ton of credit for the way they've gone about this tournament and the way they get this result. The recipe is clear, like I said off the top, but it's really, really good. Like the, the recipe is really, really good for this Australia team to go out there, make the opponent's life miserable and find a result. And that's what they've done throughout this tournament so far. I, I still believe that really up until this game, they hadn't been tested in a real way. Thinking about, what was it, Ireland, Nigeria, and Canada in their group. I previewed Canada. Obviously, a lot of things going wrong for them off, off the field. That's outside of the player's control, and it sucks that they're having to deal with a lot of issues when it comes to the Federation there with Canada Soccer. But on the field, they have not been convincing since the Olympics win. So I wasn't super high on the rest of their group, and then they go and beat Denmark, who were pretty unremarkable as well. But they come in here against France. And they're not messing around. Like, you can see very clearly what they're trying to do from minute one of this game. And I love that within that system, within the idea of, okay, we want to play a little bit deeper. Yes, we'll press at times, but we really want to attack and transition. I love how well it fits the player profiles. Like, okay, Sam Kerr can't go. Let's get Emily Van Egmond onto the field, who I I don't think is, like, a great soccer player, to be honest with you. But she's good at what she does. Like, she's good at being a body up top that you can play off of. She's limited in so many different ways. And we see that in the NWSL at times at San Diego. But she can do exactly what she needs to do in this lineup. And her role is very, very clear as this target forward. And then Mary Fowler, who I thought was awesome in this game. And I think I generally put less stock in whether or not you hit the target than than a lot of other folks do. But even if you set the shooting chances aside, her running, her ability to, to sprint in behind the back line, find space in the box for those shooting chances, she does that so well and works really well as part of this front two. And then you've got Caitlin Ford, who can play wide, and and she has done for most of this tournament, or she can tuck inside and play central, make runs forward as as kind of a pseudo number nine or second forward type. You've got Rass on the other side who works really, really hard. The player profiles just make so much sense to the point where you can't count Australia out. Like I, I think every single game, you know, I guess if Sweden progressed to the final and Australia progressed to the final, that, that could kind of be a toss-up. But I think certainly against England in the semifinal that they're going to have And if Spain win, and I think Spain will win that game on the other side of the bracket, Australia are going to keep doing their thing. Like, they're going to keep getting to play against the ball, attacking in a transition. And that recipe keeps them in or or favors them in any game. And it is truly impressive to watch. Uh, So, too, was was that penalty shootout less so extra time. We're going to talk a lot more about that shootout less so about extra time in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com 
slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, Joe. I teased the shootout, and I guess Francis goalkeeper Pedro Magnon is part of that shootout. But I want to talk about her performance in this game before we get to that one. Uh, I have been, like, if not impressed, then sort of not, like, unimpressed by her in this tournament. I don't have, she hasn't stood out in a bad way until this point, but I thought this was a very shaky performance with her. Yes. And I'm I'm assuming that also did not help French confidence when her distribution is a little bit suspect. And then some of her decision-making when to come off her line, when to call for the ball, it just felt chaotic in that, in that defense. And that is not yes. what I was expecting from this France team. Well, and, and Taylor to the point where I'm guessing this was pre-planned for a shootout, but she's not even yeah. involved in the shootout. Ooh. Like Renard subs are off in the mm-hmm. 120th minute and they, they swap there in goal. But yeah, she was, she was awful in this game. Like genuinely very, very awful. I have not seen, maybe up until the Columbia-England game, a a performance this yeah. rough from a goalkeeper yeah. outside of shot stopping, right? Because she didn't concede a goal. And so fair play on that, like fair play to France for, for 120 minutes. She didn't concede, but she did just about everything she could to make sure that France were under pressure in bad spots, bad distribution, bad coming off of her line. I don't, I don't, I'm not taking pleasure in bashing her. Like I, I, I don't wish her to have bad performances, but this was really really rough. There's a moment in the 41st minute where she comes off of her line, doesn't get to the yep. ball. There's this giant miscommunication, the first of multiple inside France's own box in this game. And Australia end up pouncing on the ball and Mary Fowler shoots and it's it's De Almeida who clears off the line. And that could have been 1-0 Australia very easily in that moment. There's another moment in this, I think it's in the second half where she comes off of her line. in 60th minute. Yeah, There it is. And can't the claim the ball. Chance. And it's mm-hmm. more chaos Yep. And then even on the distribution side, which you mentioned, she's the ball passed back to her. I think that one's in the 50th minute. My notes got scrambled right here. But the ball is packed back, passed back to her. She gets on it and just kicks it right to Australia. Like, yeah. I know mistakes happen, right? And I, I am sympathetic to that idea because I think I fumbled on my words multiple times while talking about that, right? None of us are perfect. But this was a tough one for, uh, for, for Perot Mignon. I did not think genuinely that France would escape 120 minutes of play with her in goal without conceding. And the fact that they do that just to then go losing penalties with a different goalkeeper feels like a cruel twist of fate. She has another one agreed on all the counts. She has another one where she comes for a corner uh, that is hit to the back post. She rushes to the near post and there are four players there. She runs into all of them and sort of doesn't know where she is for a moment, then turns around and sort of gets it back into position. I think the ball ends up going up for a goal kick. But you can sort of see her trying to be like, act like you belong, act like you knew what you're doing that whole time. But there is a good second or two where she is completely unaware of where she is in relation to the goal. And just like, again, not able to really capitalize on that Australia, not capitulating France. But still, when you have a goalkeeper who's just making erratic decisions throughout the game, it cannot help you feel like, okay, we can pass back. Okay, we're set there. No matter what, we know we've got a goalkeeper who's reliable. It just felt like so many parts of France that have been mostly reliable in this tournament, even if they haven't been like wholly impressive, it still felt like all of those things just kind of sputtered or stalled out in this game. And I think we did see the limitations of this France squad. We've talked plenty about other teams having injuries and having absences for whatever reason from this tournament. France, I think we saw how much they were missing uh, Marie-Antoinette Cototo and uh, Delphine Cascarino, especially probably Amandine Henri as well their longtime captain who was frozen out and then came back in but picked up an injury, all three of those players, you have to imagine, would have allowed them to have a different look in the attack or just be more dominant in the attack to get more numbers in and around goal. And I and I do feel some sympathy for Herbernard, partially because when you go out on penalties, it's hard to really 
blame the manager, especially when they do make that goalkeeper change. And I thought the uh, the replacement did quite well, Duran. I thought she was she was pretty good in the shootout, maybe not quite good enough. But I think overall we saw the limitations of this France team, France team, France team. But easy for me to say when it comes to the squad selection and then just the lack of sort of ability to put it together in the tight time frame they had uh, since Renard took over. Yep, agreed on all that, Taylor. I don't, I don't have a ton more to add right. on France. I think you summed it up well. Then let's talk about the shootout for a moment. Uh, yes. So we, we get the goalkeeper change. We get five rounds. Then we get five more rounds, uh, which was which was drama unto itself. We also have uh, uh, Arnold in goal for Australia making a save. VAR saying she left her line early, which she did. And then she makes the save again. Uh, a, a great performance. She has the moment where she makes the save, and then she takes one, and that could have been the decisive moment, yeah. and she misses her penalty. She hits the post. The keeper goes the wrong way there. It's one of the few times uh, Duran, the French goalkeeper, did guess incorrectly. She went correctly, I believe, eight out of ten takes, which shows you how accurate a lot of Australia's takes were, or how powerful in one case. Yeah. Um, but I, I felt for Arnold there because it felt to me like, oh, okay, now she's rattled, she had this miss, and then she has the moment where she comes off her line, and there's just a few more where it felt like she left way too early. She showed where she was diving way too early, all of those after she missed. And so I think it's a credit to her that she ends up making the saves that she does uh, to, to see this one out, but I also think it's a credit to Australia, and then I'll stop talking and let you have some thoughts, Joe, about the shootout, that at least three different times in this one, I thought, okay, they're done. Like there's like the momentum is just fully against them. This is going to be a miss. France have, have made theirs. Things seem to be going France's way. And then Australia just kept pulling it back. Uh, ice in the veins for Australian takers in this tournament. It's got to be Taylor. Is it Marmite? Is that is that an Australian yes. thing? It's whatever Benjamin they're putting Marmite, on their toast. The yeah, that's, yeah. It's mm-hmm. got there's got to be something in that because Australia and I hesitate at times to wade into the mentality waters because like I just don't know. Right. I've never been a professional mm-hmm. athlete. It's hard to gauge what these players are thinking. Set all that aside, right? I'll, I'll, I'll go against my, my general patterns here because mentally, Australia must have been up against it, like feeling up against it over and over again because they were, right? They needed to score at least three separate times to keep themselves in this game. They do that. And then you mentioned Mackenzie Arnold, who I think is the star of this shootout, not for exclusively good reasons, but is the main character of this shootout. There's no doubt about that in my mind. It's the fifth round. France have scored. They're, uh, they're at 3-3, so Parasette just scored. Oh, excuse me, Parasette, the shot was saved. So so Arnold keeps it at 3-3 in the fifth round, giving Australia, who went second, a chance to win it. And I'm, like, watching this along, and I see Mackenzie Arnold pop up again and realize she's about to take a penalty kick, Alyssa Nayer style, with a chance to win it after just making the save to put herself in a position to win it. She steps up and hits the post on the right side. So she she misses her penalty kick. Now it's 3-3. France step up and score their next one with Gaoro. Now it's 4-3 to France. Australia have to score. So Mackenzie Arnold has had a chance to win it, has already come up big in different moments, but didn't get the job done. And then it's it's Gore who comes up and scores. Then it goes back and forth for a little bit longer. And then you mentioned it's Dolly's penalty kick for France in the ninth round. Mackenzie saves the first one, and she's off her line, very clearly off of her line. It was the right call from the officials. And I thought, okay, this is probably it. Like, it, it's probably done. The amount of, of roller coaster action that... France and in, in, in general, uh, France, uh, excuse me, Australia in general, and specifically Mackenzie Arnold have gone through in this game. It's probably done. And and she comes up, though, Mackenzie Arnold, and makes that second save. It's a similar spot, just not as well hit from Dolly. It's a little more central. And she makes that save again. Ultimately, Australia grind out the shootout. 
which feels like, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it feels like a microcosm for this team in general. Like they're, they're just here to grind. Like they're, yeah. they're not here to make things pretty. Even Sam Kerr, like when she plays, that's not her game. She can do pretty things on the field. She can do aesthetically pleasing, crazy skill touch kind of things in tight spots, but they're here to, to punish you. Like they're here mm. to make you believe and then completely destroy your hope. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened in this shootout. And to be honest, Taylor, I'm really starting to enjoy this Australia team. Yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I think it's one of my favorite aspects of covering a tournament as we have is you really do start to get the team, understand their shape, understand who does what for the team. And you even start to understand like, oh, they're bringing her on. Okay, so they're changing this and they're doing this. I like how it becomes sort of automatic. I also think with teams that make runs as Australia have and have the successes they have, there's also things that they find out along the way or they start to do more regularly and I think Caitlin Ford uh, Graham's talked about it plenty but her just starting every game on the left now I think is a massive difference maker Ford and Rosso uh, on the wings I, I think can alleviate so much pressure and make things happen on their own uh, and it is Ford who starts the shootout shootout off well uh, she finishes hers uh, to some of the individual takes I would say I am long a proponent of pick your spot hit the ball at that spot as hard as you feel comfortable with and don't really overthink it. Don't get clever after this shootout. And after the U S performance in their shootout, I'm going to amend that to pick a spot that is low. Uh, I believe every single Australian take bar one is below like the middle of the frame of goal. The only one that is, is uh, higher is, is, uh, is Arnold's take, which is middle of the goal to the right and hits off the post. Everything else is very low, uh, but they're all hit almost perfectly on the ground. So when the keeper dives, they're going to go underneath or they're going to be just outside of, of her reach or they're buried into the side netting. Uh, Ellie Carpenter's the, the one that cut it the closest of like hitting it off the inside of the post. And then it goes into the side netting. But I felt like Australia did a really good job of just picking their spots and passing the ball into those areas. And that's exactly what Diani Renard and Les did for France. They all did slow runups and they all passed it well. And I think there was, a lot of wisdom in what the French were doing early. Because I noted uh, for the first one, for the first take from Bacha, which is saved by Arnold, she, uh, I, I don't know what the rule is on where your feet have to be. I thought we had gotten to the point where you have to stay still as the kicker, kick is, kicker is running up and then you can move. But she seemed to be starting behind the line and building a momentum so that she could explode off of it. So if she timed it well, which she does for that one, she's basically at full speed making that uh, stretch save, and she gets to it. But from that moment on, I felt like the French slowed down their takes every single time. They had a slow run-up, and then they waited for her to cheat to one side. And it felt to me what Arnold's usual approach was. Whichever side she jumped to, she dove to the other. And so if she cheated to, the, to her left the players would pass to that side and, and passed. I think all three of them went, went in correctly. Uh, so it felt to me like France were doing a good job of slowing it down, picking their spot, passing it in. And then even with the Dolly retake to me, that that is another example where Arnold is trying to get off her line as quickly as possible. And if you make her do that too early, you're going to get to retake it or you're going to score and then it won't matter. So I felt like France did have some good strategy here, some good individual strategy, just the execution was lacking and Arnold makes some great saves and makes some, has some great moments. I, I think just huge credit to Australia. Uh, yep. Arnold, I think is correct on six out of her 10. I believe she guessed correctly on every single miss except for the last one. So she doesn't have a ton of involvement for, for Becho's miss. Uh, I loved Vine, just 
comfortably, confidently finishing and then wheeling around to celebrate. That made me very happy. Uh, I thought for sure Tamika Yallop was going to miss. She looked about as nervous as a person has ever looked to take a penalty. And Ellie Carpenter, you could see she was visibly shaking for a moment before she calmed and then took her penalty. Both of them, I thought, to what we've already talked about, like, oh, that's a shame. Good tournament, Australia. I'm sorry you missed this. And then both of them took them well. Just a, a tremendous amount of credit to Australia for getting this win and, and advancing. One final question for you, Joe, uh, yeah. is, is this like not a, not a moment that makes us feel better as U.S. fans, but I, I'm starting to feel like there is a narrative here in this tournament that there is a, a need for like historically successful programs to look at what they're doing maybe a little bit more closely. We uh, talked about yesterday. We don't have a a champion. We, we no one is going to win it for the second time. We're going to have a new champion because all the teams that have won it are now eliminated. And so we had Norway having a very underwhelming tournament. We had Germany not even make it out of their group. Uh, we had who, who else has won it? That I'm forgetting. Japan now out. I think Japan yeah. is maybe the only exception to that one. I think they just got caught at the wrong moment. The United States obviously eliminated, but then. Here we have France, who are a, a perennial talent and a perennial uh, contender. They're out at the hands of Australia. It doesn't seem to me like a lot of these big programs, like like a lot of the issues that we're talking about with France are, are the same issues we had with the U.S., that there isn't the depth there. There isn't that next level look. There are some questions about the, the coach uh, for various reasons. It just feels like there are similarities there that some of these larger programs need that refresh, need that reset. Maybe they just needed... Uh, these these other nations to like raise their game and push them and remind them like oh no you don't just like show up and make the semis as we expected the United States to do you got to work for it and if you don't you're going to be out yeah I, I don't know if this is a, a total answer to your question um, I, I'm not even I've sure thinking, I ended up asking a question so don't worry about well, it well I'll, I'll just share a thought then I've been thinking more and more about like there's a lot of discussion about for the U S and now maybe for France even though France make it uh, around further there's a lot of discussion about oh this World Cup will serve as uh, and an awakening, like everybody will sort of realize it'll be this moment of realization that, oh, no, we've been doing things wrong. Like we should change. I can't honestly, I can't stand nope. that thought, not because it's it's wrong necessarily. Like the, this World Cup for the U.S. should serve as a moment of realization where they where they think to themselves, oh, we're not we're not ahead anymore. And for France, it, it, frankly, it should have been before this. But this World yeah. Cup will serve as a reminder to them of we have to get our house in order. It's just ridiculous to me that these federations allow this stuff to happen. Like they're so inactive for the US. If you if you haven't noticed that the US is falling behind where they've been before, like you just haven't been paying attention. It, it's not hard to see. And the same goes for France, who, who maybe on their part, it's more like willful opposition in some ways to the team that they've created, given how long Diacro was allowed to be in charge of this team. There's all sorts of reasons why there can be issues here. But you mentioned the US, and I've just been thinking about that more and more with regards to the USWNT. I just can't stand this this discussion about like, oh, this World Cup now, everything's going to change because we now realize that the world's getting better and maybe we're not quite as good as we used to be. No, like you should have been thinking that thought before. Like France yeah. should have been thinking that thought before of, oh, we're not optimizing our team. Like the players hate our manager. We should change that. Let's go find Irv Bernard long before they actually did, right? I know he was in a different job, so maybe it would have been a different coach, but you get the idea. It's just ridiculous how poorly managed, and this applies to the U.S. first and foremost, frankly. It's ridiculous how poorly managed and slow to act some of these federations are. And it, I don't know, it just, it sucks. Like, it, it's it's extremely poor management. And I think we would see for at least some of these teams different results if things had been 
uh, adjusted sooner, shall we say. We know there were some issues with the uh, the Spanish coach as well, so maybe this yep. trend will continue and we'll see Spain get knocked out by Sweden. I also, a Sweden-Australia final is what everybody had uh, coming into this one, I'm sure. Fox sheds a single tear, although Australia <laughs> would be good for them, I'm sure, as the host. What I, what I will say is, everything I, I believe everything I just said, mm-hmm. the other part of this, another undercurrent, to use that word for the second time on today's show, NACO tournaments are just like crazy and sometimes random and, and good teams that should win lose. We saw that with the U.S. when they were better than Sweden. They still get knocked out of that performance, right? Like all of those things that I said about mismanagement from federations, I I do believe. But sometimes you can be the perfect federation and the better team by a mile, and you still get like one pulled over your eyes because yeah. of how knockout tournaments are. So fair on all the counts. The final thing I would say, and this is, I I will hold my hand up and say, like genuinely from a position of ignorance. So. Uh, perhaps I'm speaking out of school here. I, I, I hear you about uh, the U.S. program and other programs and how maybe they should have seen this coming or some of them did see this coming and just didn't make the change. Right. I, I do think an area where we could have improvement on the domestic side of things, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the U.S. women's national team because I'm talking about the NWSL. And I look at so many of the players that we've seen as being breakout players in this tournament, they are not playing in the NWSL. And that is very much a a domestic league with uh, players from certain countries that have like historically been connected to NWSL playing there. But this uh, Colombia team that we're about to talk about, for example, Linda Caicedo already playing for Real Madrid, but Myra Ramirez, who I think could be an infinite goal scorer in the NWSL is, is playing for Levante. We're seeing the Spanish league just become so much stronger, not just with the big two, but with a number of different clubs putting money into their women's teams. And, and I think that helps the Spanish team develop certainly, but it also helps other, other nations get better and better. And I just feel like we haven't seen NWSL fully realize, except that there needs to be more recruitment. There needs to be more uh, like players brought in from other countries that aren't just, the huge names who are now 28, 29, 30, whatever, who we can bring in and they're going to put some butts in the seats. I think there could be uh, an awareness of bringing younger players, get some scouting going. I think there's plenty of players for that Columbia team who are playing in Columbia right now that could be difference makers for NWSL teams. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a thing that's going to change for the league. I don't know how much money there is to make that happen. But I do think that lack of diversity in geographic location for NWSL teams or where their players are coming from isn't helping things. It isn't giving us different teams with different looks and different styles and different individual players. And and I think that would be one area where I would love to see NWSL continue to improve. So I think I think start to improve. Maybe I think that would make for a fascinating full show for us to do after this, after this world cup is done, maybe, you know, get somebody who's in that NWSL space all the time on the media side to come on and talk more about you know, why the league is now facing some challenges. My perception, quickly, before we move on to the second Please. game, is you know, the NWSL kind of was first to this yeah. whole game and maybe didn't push hard enough to go out there and actually like really establish themselves. It's, it's hard to reverse all of the infrastructure that's already in place on the men's side. Like, obviously... La Liga and the Premier League on the men's side of domestic leagues and, and all of the other you know, top European leagues are miles ahead of where Major League Soccer is on the men's side. Right? And, and just soccer infrastructure in those countries is more developed. And so the U.S. in some ways was playing catch up. And the NWSL, in my view, was their chance to really close that gap, like on the women's side, to be the leader. And then maybe didn't push their, their foot down on the gas quite hard enough at the start. And now 
they still haven't sorted out their own house in some ways. Like we, we talked about the Yates report and all of the many, many yep. issues. And that is not unique True. to the NWSL. But the reality is those are real challenges that are being faced by some of these players. So there are just lots and lots of issues that are impacting U.S. soccer and the, the women's national team. And, and it's not unique to the U.S. certainly. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a messy web, Taylor, to say the least. I love the idea of that being a, a bigger episode, either a big thing episode at some point or just a, a spotlight episode down the road. But for now, Joe, let's take one more break and then spend at least a couple minutes making Ryan Bailey happy by talking about England. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. It's time to talk England, Columbia, a game that for a moment felt like it was going to be a crazy, crazy day of football with Australia knocking out France, Columbia taking the lead against England, and then England find their way right back into it. Uh, Columbia definitely not helping themselves uh, with the goal they conceded, specifically Perez, the goalkeeper, not helping her team. Uh, And then England getting the win in the 63rd minute minute from uh, Alessia Russo. Uh, I'm going to say this was a, in my my opinion, not a good game of football, but a very good showing from England in that they weren't overwhelmed by the occasion of, of being the favorites going into a knockout game, but also playing in a knockout round game against an opponent who were very much the more supported team in this one. You could tell the atmosphere was like significantly pro Columbia. So that could have gone against them. The intensity of the moment could have gone against them, but then also the intensity of this game, Columbia from the jump content to make this a physical game. Yep. And when the American official does not start handing out yellow cards early, 
I think that is a, oh, okay, we're going to play that type of game. We're just going to keep going. And, and I think Columbia did a good job of fouling directly, of making it physical. And then there were a lot of moments. Venegas uh, is the one that made me really start tracking this. There's a moment, uh, I think, in the second half when Lucy Bronze passes a ball and then continues to jog. And Venegas fully just jumps in front of her. And it's, it's, it's after the ball is gone by a good three seconds. She knows exactly what she's doing, but the official doesn't see it. And I think Columbia uh, like went for the dark arts early and often in the second half. And I think England sort of rose to that occasion, played a physical game that needed to happen for them to still be in it, but then also continued to play good technical football at the same time to be able to pass through some of that pressure and some of that intensity. And I thought this was overall a good showing for England that I have a feeling is going to be billed as like England lucky to scrape through and individual mistakes cost Columbia. I felt like England uh, deserve credit for the way they pulled through. I love Taylor, how you finished that because how it's billed is exactly how I feel about England. Really? Okay. I I think we're on opposite sides. I, I hear what you're saying, right? I think, England were not overawed by the moment. You know, they had some of the crowd against them. Columbia continue to bring it in the atmosphere uh, category throughout this tournament. I didn't see the clown. I didn't see the jester. I did oh, see I'm a Columbia sorry, fan with a giant like bowl hat, which was <laughs> awesome. I want more of that, Columbia. You're killing it. I'm a big fan. I, I-, I thought England deserved credit. I think England deserved credit for handling their emotions in this game, like, you know, handling the the sort of way the game was being played by Columbia, and you laid out reasons as to why that's the case, right? Maybe emotions isn't the right word, but you get the idea. I think for England, though, that should be the expectation, right? This team just won the Euros. I I guess I am hesitant to give, like, a ton of gold stars out for maybe nailing some of the mental aspects when, really, Taylor, I thought some of the the attacking play from England was poor in this game. Mm -hmm. They go down in the 44th minute. It's a a little bit of a fluke goal from Columbia, but I kind of felt like that should have been a wake-up call. For, for this England team, yes, they do get a goal before halftime, but it is Catalina Perez that, that gifts that one straight to England. She makes mincemeat out of, out of a goal from Lauren Hemp, where it's a ball into the box from Kira Walsh, goes and, and is sort of chipped to the back post-ish. It's not quite the back post, but chipped into the box, headed then across. The ball's on the ground. It's a heavy-ish touch from Russo. It goes right to Perez, who comes out to claim it, and it just slips out of her hand, right? And it is credit to Lauren Hemp, I guess, for being in the right place at the right time. That's a very useful skill. And she puts the ball into the back of the net, and it's 1-1. The second goal, quickly to run through that one before I get to my, like, this is why England maybe weren't so good point. It's the 63rd minute. It's England in possession in the final third, as they were for a lot of this game. It's Georgia Stanway on the ball in the right half space. She slips Alessia Russo into the box as she's making a nice little forward run. It's a great finish from Russo with her right foot. But she does get fortunate here. Like, it's another misplay from Columbia. million percent. Like, yes. it's it's Daniela Arias, who's playing as the left-sided center back in Columbia's 4-4-2 shape. She steps forward, trying to make a play on that ball. So she sees the ball coming in from Stanway. She says, I'm going to step forward to intercept the ball. She does not do so. And at this point, this is one of those situations where you have to either get the ball or the player. She's still outside the box. So bringing down the player is an option. It's not a good option, but it is an option. And she does neither. She doesn't get the ball. She doesn't get a foot on it. And she doesn't get the player either. And Russo comes in, has a shot from a difficult angle. And it's a good finish from her, again, to give credit where credit is due. But it's Columbia kind of opening the door for England, who I thought in general were just slow on the ball. Like, they didn't move the ball very quickly. There's all sorts of other issues that I have with their play. But I feel like I've been talking for a long time. Taylor, the nuts and bolts of it is I did think that these goals were, were fairly gifted. They were they were gifted from Columbia to England. And in general, I didn't think England created much on their own. Yeah. So uh, 
heard and agreed on the first one for sure. That is Perez uh, failing to make a play, I would argue, two different times. I also felt like it was very fitting that that is the way uh, Lauren Hamble was able to score because uh, for the last couple games, I felt like she just does so much thankless running. She does so much pressing. She is on the ball, carrying the ball, trying to make something happen, making runs, and isn't always rewarded, doesn't always get that like final product. Uh, and in this one, I'm glad that she did. But I would agree with you that that was more a mistake from Perez than it was England figuring out a way through Colombia. I would say the second goal, first of all, if I were playing FIFA, I would be furious that the game had glitched because I still do not understand how this ball gets through uh, to Russo, but somehow it does. I would uh, add this to the list of mistakes from Perez because when the shot is taken, I think she is way too concerned about covering that near post. I feel Mm -hmm. like she has the near post and then some of the outside of the goal covered. So that's already sort of a mistake, a mistake that you can make up for if you then have the correct body position to be able to get across and make the save. But as that shot is taken, if you watch Perez, and it's not even like that she's rapidly sliding over and so you can forgive her for not having her footing right. She is in position and when the shot is taken her feet are inside of her shoulders there's no way you're going to be able to launch to either side that you need to if that shot is low with your body shape like that and she i think just thinks the shot is coming right at her it's going to be a near post shot maybe loses where she is in relation to the goal and so thinks she has more of the center or the far post covered but that to me was another mistake from the goalkeeper and i think if she is in a better position and has her footing right and then doesn't make that mistake we're talking about Colombia going in 1-0 at the half. We're talking about England not getting a fortunate goal just before halftime that completely changes the halftime preparations and the halftime adjustments. And then to not get that second goal off of individual mistakes, I think it could have gone very differently on the day for Colombia, who maybe deserved more for some of their attacking play. Or I guess in moments they're attacking play. I, I don't know how much there was overall. Uh, but in the second goal where I feel like England did sort of show their quality. Uh, It's Alex Greenwood on the ball, and she has Georgia Stanway open for a good couple seconds before she plays it, but she goes for a lifted ball. She puts it uh, between two defenders, but then over another defender onto Stanway's feet. And this is where I feel like you need a player like Georgia Stanway who brings the ball down perfectly, but also brings it down while opening up to then face the goal so that she controls it and moves into a good position to see the goal and everything in front of her in one fluid move. And it takes the defender who's on her back out at the exact same time. Now she can play forward and and does again, fortunate FIFA glitch uh, to get through, but there were, were moments of quality in there that were also then I think helped by some Colombian mistakes. Totally, totally. I, I would agree with all that. I just wanted more. I wanted more of those Fair. moments from England. Taylor, I love that yeah. you bring up the Greenwood ball. It's it's a great ball. Maybe maybe a little late to come in, but it is a great ball. Mm-hmm. And Stanway does really well with it. I like the intent behind her pass, even if there's some fortune associated with, with how RAS defends that sequence. I just wanted more. Like, if, if we zoom out for half a second, England playing really in, in like this 3-1-6 shape or a 3 one Two, four. I, I don't know how you want to describe it, but it's three center backs. Kira Walsh as a six, Stanway and, and Toon as kind of two dual yeah. tens, dual eights. The wing backs in, in bronze and daily, high and wide a lot of the time. And then a front two of, of Lauren Helm, Hemp and Alessia Russo. England pushing numbers forward because they knew what this game was going to be. They knew Colombia were going to defend in a 4 4 2 block. They knew they were going to have most of the ball. They knew it was going to be on them to create chances. All of those things turned out to be very true as this game wore on. 
But Colombia, defending in their 4-4-2, had two up front, obviously, against England's back three. And for me, whenever you have that advantage, it's a huge opportunity to push your outside center backs forward, to have Alex Greenwood push forward, to have Jess Carter push forward on the ball, because, especially for Colombia in this game, Ramirez and Santos were so worried about Kira Walsh, which is a good thing to be worried about, that they weren't really pressuring the center backs much at all. And so England had a chance then to stride forward and really play quickly, to be aggressive and to take some risks while still having at least two center backs back to deal with a Colombia team that was mm-hmm. really hesitant to push numbers forward. Myra Ramirez had the fewest touches in this game of any game so far in this competition. Not by, not by much. They ended up being one fewer touch than the win against Germany. But like, she wasn't very involved. Colombia didn't want to take risks. So England, I think the obvious move there is to push more numbers forward, to push the center back forward, to break lines, just to play with a quicker tempo. And I felt like that didn't come. And Taylor, if we learned anything from today about Australia from that first game we discussed, if you're not playing with a quick tempo against Australia, you're not going to break them down. And maybe yep. maybe Serena Wiegmann's playing 4D chess and she said, we can afford to play a little slower against Colombia. We know that they will make some mistakes and we want to be conservative because we know the attacking quality they have going the other way when they do go the other way and they'll speed up things more naturally against Australia. I just, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what England were, were really processing in real time here. I just think they were slow on the ball. And yep. I think the moments of quality were very real. There just weren't enough of them. And if I'm an England fan... First of all, I'm feeling happy that we made it through this Columbia game, and it's been a good run, and this is a very good team, one that will still be without Lauren James for that semifinal, a big blow for them in the the chance creation department. But I'm also feeling a little bit worried, given what Australia showed and how sluggish England looked at times. Yeah. Joe, I think that that's all fair, and I I think I'm maybe moving down my estimations of England's performance just a little bit as this conversation goes on. I also think... It's a fair source of criticism that, to your point, Myra Ramirez not on the ball very much. And when she did, she did Myra Ramirez things of be impossible to bring down so much so that uh, Alex Greenwood hurts herself trying to professionally foul Myra Ramirez at one point. But also, I think because Colombia were so hesitant to commit numbers into the attack when she would get on the ball and would maybe have an, like a, a, a mistake from England, pass the ball to her or a deflected pass would go to Myra Ramirez at least twice in the second half. She is dribbling even slower than she would be otherwise because there are no players around her. And it takes Columbia forever to get one and two players into the attack alongside her. And then it takes even longer for them to get three and four players yep. into the attack uh, from the jump. I had Columbia in a four-two-three-one of sorts, but it was it was confusing because uh, Usme on the right side was very, very ready to be a defender. She was like dropping in and and I think to help uh, deal with Rachel Daly, who they knew was going to be aggressive. I felt like Santos also doing a lot of defensive work. So you had this sort of weird four and then an offset four, uh, one one shape because Linda Caicedo very much told to stay wide and be the outlet. And then Myra Ramirez also staying high, high-ish high to be a kind of physical outlet. And so Colombia at times only really attacking via the occasional moments of winning the ball off of an England mistake in possession. Otherwise, it was direct ball to Myra Ramirez, direct ball to Linda Caicedo. And, and even in the first half, I think there's one down the line for Ramirez that she ends up, she gets at midfield and carries a good 40 yards forward. 
And there's just, I think she ends up earning a corner or a throw in off of it. And I say earn because she, again, has no one around her. She's looking to pass across the whole way and just keeps having to dribble and dribble and dribble into the corner. And, and so it's good that she earns the corner, but at the same time, right there is when I felt like Columbia are going to struggle to score a goal outside of a mistake or a strange moment. And that is what we got. We got the Lacey Santos shot that I, I, the commentators, uh, on my feed were saying not sure if there was a deflection to me there was a pretty clear deflection off Seemed of uh, Rachel Daly and yeah. and in it went the celebrations for that one gave me goosebumps it made me so excited for Columbia it felt like now maybe they can hold on and it did feel like they went rapidly into desperation defending I think the next two England attacks are just hoofed clear because uh, they're trying to get to halftime with that one nil lead but that goal aside, it just it did not feel like Columbia had much in the way of attacking opportunity until it was clear that they had to start committing numbers and had to start trying stuff in the final 15 minutes or so. And then it was trying stuff from tight angles or from distance or very low percentage chances. And so that they still were able to get a goal and at times make England look I don't know, like struggle to handle some of their attacking play, certainly struggle to handle Linda Caicedo on the day. It does make me wonder how much they will struggle to handle a much more, uh, if not competent, then sort of unified Australian attacking approach or or a patterned Australian attacking approach. Yeah, I I think Australia is a bad matchup for England. Maybe it's just when Ryan's not here that I have the urge to make predictions, but I'm just going to do it and say it's going to be an Australia-Spain final. Now that I say it, it's going to be a Sweden-England final. That's just how it goes. But I, I think Australia, for the reasons we've already talked about, will make life very difficult for England. And England, without Lauren James, with a bunch of other injuries leading into this competition, they're they're thinner now in some key attacking positions than they were last summer. Were the Euros last summer? They were, right? Yeah, in, in, in the Euros, where mm-hmm. they ended up with the trophy. I'm just not all the way there on this England team. That said, it would not surprise me at all because the talent level is still very high for them. If they're able to get past Australia, that's just the reality at this point in a World Cup. Anything is truly possible because of of how good these teams are in the format of, of knockout tournaments. But setting England aside for half of a second to kind of tie a bow on my thoughts on Colombia, this was so fun. Taylor, like Colombia, I think are going to be the team that I remember most fondly from this competition. It certainly won't be won't be the US. There were other contenders for this title, but Colombia, because no, they make it further. Right than any of these these sort of underdogs. Japan, stylistically, definitely fit that bill. But expectations were lower for Colombia than they were for Japan. And, and the Japan fact that they will ended feel up like a it, missed opportunity. I'm, yes. I'm right there with you. They were a the only bit. team that I thought of. Yeah. And I still I still loved watching this Japanese team. And if Ikeda becomes the U.S. coach, I'll, I'll be stoked about that. At least I like that you're trying to build start. that as a possibility. I yeah. really I like am. I've been trying that. to do it every chance I get. <laughs> but, man, Colombia, I have so much love for them. And I think they deserve so much credit. The run that they make, having a clear way of playing, dealing with, for years, issues in the Federation, which is not unique to them, as we've already discussed, all these different challenges are popping up in far too many places all over the globe. But we talked about that after their their last game. Now they come into this match, and it was a reminder for me, watching Linda Caicedo, who was so bright in so many moments. She's just 18 years old. She's just 18 years old. She's scored. She's assisted in this competition. She's not the finished product yet. Like She's a star, She's not a superstar yet, though. I think there's a moment, it's in the 15th minute, where she's on the brig. She beats Jess Carter, a rare moment where Columbia really are going forward. She does so, so well, breaks into the box, dusts Jess Carter, by the way, cuts it back onto her right foot. And instead of deciding to try and, and find a pass, granted, there weren't a ton of numbers still in the box for Columbia, so not a lot of obvious options. But instead of trying to, to maybe let the play develop one or two more seconds, 
she fires off a shot with a right foot that goes well wide. And I know she scored a beautiful goal from a fairly similar spot in this competition. It's just not a good choice, ultimately, from Linda Caicedo. Nope. Four years from now, in 2027, yep. when she's still only 22 years old, like, I am... I'm afraid of what that player looks like for opposing defenders. I'm afraid of what a 28-year-old Myra Ramirez in 2027 will look like. I think this team has such a bright future. The fact that they achieved this much already, maybe one tournament too early for their key players, it's just awesome. And I have so much respect, again, for this team and what they've accomplished. It's been a ton of fun. Yeah, retweet on that one, my friend. And yes, I'm still saying tweet uh, because she has the moment you talked about. She also has one of Columbia's final attacks, if not the final attack. She gets in enough space to get a shot off, which she does, but she shoots it maybe 10 yards wide of goal because I think she's just trying to make something happen. But it's another moment where if you maybe take another touch, another second and pick your head up and look around, you might make a defender bite and you can get by them. And now you've got an even better opportunity. You might be able to pick out a pass. It felt like she was sort of rushing uh, like chances in this game. But then she also is the one to pick up the loose ball and play it wide uh, that sets up Columbia's goal. She has the moment in the second half when she lifts it, I believe, over Kira Walsh. It might have been Georgia Stanway, but she lifts it, runs around her, and catches it on the other side. She has those little moments of individual skill that will sort of make you be like, whoa, what just happened there? How did she do that? And I think, to your point, she has those moments that let you know that she is a special player or going to be a very special player. I think four years from now, with more experience, especially at Real Madrid, uh, she will probably be that that superstar that we're seeing in the kind of like montage of players heading into the tournament to get people hyped. So credit to Colombia, the lowest seeded team in the history of the Women's World Cup to make it as far as they did. Uh, I'm with you, Joe. I will have fond memories of Colombia. Uh, but now we get England versus Australia in our other semifinal it's a strange world that I could see it being Spain-England in the final, and then I could also be, see it being Sweden-Australia in the final. I think one of those would be slightly more entertaining than the other, uh, but it would also Sweden be Sweden-Australia, obviously. Yeah, exactly, to not yeah. have Ryan Bailey be happy about England. Oh, <laughs> speaking of Ryan Bailey not being happy, I believe his specific prediction was that the France-Australia game would be scoreless and go to penalties, and France would win on penalties. So he was right, right up until the very end. Similarly... I had that England would uh, double Colombia's number of completed passes. And with about 15 minutes to go, I was cruising, baby. I was, I was feeling so good. And then I think in the final 15 minutes plus yep. injury time, England completed 10 passes, and I think Colombia completed 60. And so I did not get my prediction. It was close. Uh, but I blame England for not controlling yes. the game more. That is, yes. You know what? Never mind. Now it's a fully negative performance because they didn't control the game such Agreed. that I got my prediction point. Well, in, in England, they were just good enough. Or maybe I'll blame Catalina Perez for my VSP, where I said England would have less than one XG at the end of 90 minutes. They did not because, really, of that Lauren Hemp chance. Like, that was their one really, really high-quality chance when you look at those XG kind of race charts. They shoot up there, and at that point, I'm, I'm kind of out of contention. But you know, we'll, we'll come back stronger, Taylor, in this in the in the semifinals. Uh, Kira Walsh did win none of her duels. She was 0 for 1, so Ryan doesn't get that point either. So at, at the very least, we can just celebrate Ryan's uh, failures. Joe, I did also contemplate with it just being you and me, and we are going to do some specific predicting to close this Doing one like out. Doing like four, just, yeah, just being like, Joe, take take five, take five or six. Why not? Uh, but let's do that then. Let's let's uh, do some specific predicting for either of our semifinals. Unless you want to spend any more time on the Australia England matchup, I think in my mind it's basically. Uh, Australia, a bad much matchup for England. I think England need to move the ball quickly yep. and and have some some zing on that ball. Uh, limit their number of touches, keep it moving. Uh, 
ride the physicality like they did against Columbia and handle that as well as they can and maybe not get caught on the break and not make individual mistakes. Yep, that that totally lines up with what I'm expecting. I'm really excited for both of these games. It's a clash of styles in both. Sweden have that little extra wild card and the set piece side, but it it will be Spain really dominating the ball on that side of the bracket against Sweden. Sweden trying to find their, their attackers with more direct play, whipping in balls from the wings, either in set pieces or in open play. And then on the other side, Australia, England, I think will play out exactly like you just said. Joe, we could have a world if the format were different in which we had England and Spain as one semifinal and Sweden, Australia as the other. I'm very happy we live in, live in the world we do where yes. we get uh, contrasting styles in both. Uh, for either of those games, Joe, have you got a specific prediction? I do. Mine is for Spain versus Sweden. I'm saying that Spain will create at least three shots from a winger crashing on the weak side. So think back for just a half yeah, second yeah, to yeah. that game mm-hmm. against the Dutch. The Dutch defending fairly narrow, and, and Sweden have a tendency to do something similar, although not not to the same degree. Spain then would have the ball, especially on their left side, and then it would be the winger crashing hard from the right side into the box to get on the ball or to even just be a decoy runner for somebody else filling in behind her. Spain had a lot of success with that, or at least used that pattern a lot. I think that's going to be something they go back to just naturally. Again, they're, they problem-solve really well. They'll draw defenses to one side and find the space on the weak side. It, it just seems to come to them so obviously. Like, it's, it's not difficult for them. That's why I love watching this Spain team. I think we're going to see at least three shots um, that come from sequences with a winger crashing on the weak side. Not necessarily the winger shooting, but similar to your, I believe it was Le Sommer. You talked about with her movement mm-hmm. impacting France earlier in this tournament. I think most likely it will be a winger crashing and getting the shot themselves, but maybe that's creating space for a fullback or for a number eight or something along those lines. Yeah, I think it's a great shout, Joe. And I think it is something we saw a lot uh, versus the Dutch for Spain. The other thing that I saw that I think fits into what you're talking about is I still don't know if it's if it's battle or battle or however I'm supposed to say the the left back for Spain, but I'm going with battle. But uh, as the first half went on, I saw her taking up a position uh, like behind the kind of front uh, the front wave or if if Spain had possession in uh, the Dutch final third, she would be a little bit further back and a little bit more central and she would be there for the ball to like recycle possession and then she would go for the ball to that back post and you would have Spain try to get out to not get caught offside and then recycle that run in behind for uh, Redondo on the right. So that's another one where I could see it even being, even if they do sort of not try for that right away, I could see the recycle possession, try to break the uh, the offside line and make something happen from there. So I think that's a great shout, Mr. Lowry. Uh, I think that England are going to play similar game to what we saw today versus Australia. I think Alex Greenwood will have the most touches of any player on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And that will be because she's a very important player, certainly, but also because as we saw at times against Colombia, you could see her literally put her foot on the ball and look around and then take a touch and then take another touch and then play it to uh, like, like Lucy bronze who then would play it right back to her. And then Greenwood would take a touch and take another touch. I don't think Sweden are going to be pressing high. I don't think they're going to try to disrupt much of what the center backs are doing, I think if anything, they're going to invite the center backs forward so that they can then try to press them in more opportune areas to win the ball and then attack the space that they've vacated. I think Greenwood is the center back who's most likely to do that for England. So for the reasons being that she is very important and good on the ball, especially in her distribution, but is also the center back, it seems like most trusted with being on the ball when trying to pick moments and also the one who will carry it forward. I think Alex Greenwood is going to have the most touches of any player on the pitch. I'm here for it, Taylor. I'm here for both of us kind of being in the same boat. I think we're both 
Well, all of us, at least last I checked in the Discord, were one point behind Ryan. So this is a big opportunity for you and I to come in, make a push, level it going into the final. This is, Taylor, this is huge, and I think we can really make up some ground. Uh, the other thing I'm going to do to try to make up some ground, I've been meaning to do this, but Joe, I am very happy that you and I got predictions and Graham and Ryan do not. Uh, I, I had two predictions for the group stage that were about a player doing a certain thing at least a certain number of times in each game. Uh, and I had, didn't really track that one at all. So I'm, I might have to use some Y Scout and go back and just like <laughs> look for those individual moments. And if I find enough of them, believe that I will be claiming it. But uh, until I can do that extra research to give myself that advantage, Joe, thank you for making some specific predictions with me. Thank you for talking about uh, Australia's shootout win over France and England's not quite shootout win over Colombia. Uh, I really enjoyed our chat, really enjoyed these games, uh, really enjoyed getting to talk to you again on Very Minimal Sleep. I'm guessing that is the case for you as well. It is, Taylor, but I agree with you on all fronts. These games are fun. This tournament's been fun. It's great to talk about soccer. This was a blast. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We've got three more games that we're going to be talking about at the Women's World Cup. I'm on three and a half hours of sleep, so that was difficult math to do. We're going to be talking about those games next week, but we're also going to be doing some weekend reviewing because the Premier League, La Liga, and everything else is back, Joe. So we've got some games to watch. I don't know if the Bundesliga is back. I haven't nope, checked that nope. one. They tend I think to we've got later. a little more time. Although we do have, what is it, the Super Cup, Bayern Leipzig. It's on, uh, Ryan has already kindly put that on the running order as if there, there wasn't enough on it but maybe we'll see Harry Kane do cool stuff in like three hours from now who knows all right Uh, well I look forward to talking about those games and many other things as well as our remaining games of the Women's World Cup with you and Graham and Ryan but for now listeners thanks again we'll talk to you next week